in the late 1930s as a resurgent Germany began to expand its borders, the Western powers, Great Britain and France and others, adopted a policy that today we call appeasement. And the appeasement process was uh, really an attempt to avoid war. And so, in this season before World War II, there were a number of moments where Germany crossed a line, and instead of consequences, instead of justice or judgment, the Allies opted for mercy in the hopes that mercy might change the outcome, the trajectory of the story in which they were living. So, in 36, when Germany militarized the Rhineland, the Allies did nothing. And in 37, when Germany annexed Austria, the Allies spoke up and at this violation of Versailles, but really didn't do anything. Uh, and then in 38, Germany started fomenting this conflict around Czechoslovakia and the Sudetenland region, the German-speaking region of, of Czechoslovakia. Uh, and in September of that year, there was an attempt to head off this conflict that everybody thought was coming. And so, uh, Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, and um, Deladier, the Prime Minister of France, and Mussolini and Hitler got together in Munich on September 29, 1938 to um, divide up Czechoslovakia and to try to avert war. Actually, I have a picture um, from the signing of that document. That's Neville Chamberlain on the far left, and then Deladier, Hitler, Mussolini, and um, Cairo, I can't remember. Cairo, that's another Italian guy at the end. Um, this, this document was supposed to be the thing that, that saved the, the West, saved the, the, the world from another world war. And in fact, um, days later when uh, Chamberlain returned home, he held a giant press conference on the tarmac um, around his airplane. We got a picture of that as well. Uh, and um, at this press conference, he held up this document that was signed at Munich. And he said, famously, we have secured peace in our time. We've secured peace in our time. We gave uh, parts of Czechoslovakia to Hitler, but he says it's the last territory he wants to gain, and we have secured peace in our time. Of course, we know they didn't. Of course, we know that less than a year later, Germany invades Poland and World War II begins. Um, but in that season, uh, even though we look back now with incredible regret on that policy of appeasement, in that season, I really believe that Chamberlain and others were doing their very best to try to avert a war. And their thought was that maybe we just need to be merciful, right? We, we were pretty harsh at Versailles. Let's just be merciful and let's see if, if we can avoid any conflict. And, and the problem is that mercy isn't always the right option. Mercy isn't always the right option. Sometimes mercy allows evil to perpetuate itself. And we see that in this season in, Amer in, in world history. Uh, we see it in, in smaller places. We see it when, um, you know, we have great judges in America, but when a, a judge makes a mistake and releases someone too early and they come back and create another, commit another crime, we, we see that sometimes mercy is not always the right choice. And yet, 
We also see throughout the story of Scripture that, that justice or judgment isn't always God's will either. And, and in particularly the story of the flood, we get this idea that perfect justice leads really to everybody getting wiped out, right? And, and so after the flood, we get this promise that God won't do that again. He will not enact the justice the world deserves. And so um, God and we are placed in this weird situation between mercy and judgment where God wants to intervene in the world He wants to bring justice, but He also wants to wait and partner with faithful people to strive for redemption and change and hope that mercy might overcome evil. Uh, And and in this tension is where we find ourselves in the beginning of the story, this tension between justice and mercy, uh, this tension between uh, judgment and grace. Uh, God stands in opposition to wickedness. Um, But when is His judgment necessary? When does God need to show up and have a fire and brimstone moment is the question that Scripture is asking. And I think we get an answer. I think the answer is that when a culture becomes so corrupt, there are insufficient partners remaining. Or when the partners God has to work with are indistinguishable from the people they're supposed to be helping God save, the season for mercy is past. When the partners God has to work with are indistinguishable from the people they're supposed to help God to save. That's the situation we find with Lot today. It is a weird story. So, two angels show up in Sodom in this great city, lots at the gateway, at the doorway of the city. This is a a normal place where respectable people might wait to do business. When these two angels walk in, Lot immediately rises and bows down before them, invites them to come and stay at his house. It's not clear in this moment of the story whether Lot knows who they are or not. We don't know if Lot recognizes these are angels or if he's just practicing hospitality. But hospitality to strangers is a core virtue of the ancient world and certainly a core virtue in Scripture. And so Lot immediately stands up and says, hey, you guys come with me. I'll take care of you. We're told, by the way, um, in in this passage in 2 Peter, that Lot is a righteous guy, that Lot wants to do right by God, uh, but that he is living amongst people who are irrighteous, unrighteous, wicked, and um, he is tormented in his soul by their lawless deeds. So that night, uh, as Lot is entertaining his guests, all the men of the city gather together, the Scripture says young and old, and they come outside of Lot's door and they say, send out the men, we want to know them. And this means we want to have sex with them, right? And uh, particularly, we want to rape them. Um, By the way, um, all the situations in Scripture, and we have other moments that are not dissimilar from this, um, all these moments in Scripture are not about sex, they're about power, right? Rape's about power. Uh, and, and, And so these men come to assert their power, their dominance over these strangers. Now, we are supposed to recognize a parallel here, Um, between what happened before the flood and what happens before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the flood in chapter 6 of Genesis, we're told that angels 
take human women to be their wives. And here we have human men trying to take angels uh, for the purposes of sex. And so we have this um, deep corruption um, in this culture on so many levels. And, and Lot, interestingly, tries to intercede on behalf of his guests, right? He actually like goes outside with these men, closes the door behind him, and, and tries to negotiate to protect his guests. Uh, and, and we're going to come back to that negotiation in a minute. Um, but it doesn't go well, and the angels reach out and grab him and pull him in. Again, in a parallel to the story of Noah, um, in the story of Noah, remember the animals and the family go on to the ark, and then God shuts the door. And here, we have that exact same language. God shuts the door. The angels shut the door of Noah's house and strike everyone blind. But before they do that, Noah has a conversation. Uh, and Noah says, don't be raw. Don't be wicked. And they say, no, we will be more raw. We'll be even more wicked than we used to be. And we get this perspective that in this moment, this is a culture that exalts wickedness over goodness, right? They have confused what is good and what is evil in their minds. And every human culture has aspects of this, um, but this one is, is pretty profound. And the question is, are there any partners in this corrupt culture who are so different from the world around them that God can cooperate with them to bring redemption? And so we get um, to maybe the most uncomfortable part of the story. When Lot says to the men outside his house who are trying to assault the angels inside, um, don't hurt these men, they're my guests. I have two daughters. I'll give you my daughters instead. Our um, revulsion at this moment is intended, right? You're supposed to be disgusted by this comment. We're supposed to be horrified that this guy that is supposedly righteous would ever consider offering up his daughters as um, bargaining chips for any purpose whatsoever. Uh, and if it wasn't clear to us that this is an act of profound evil, we get a, a catchphrase. And, and the catchphrase is, uh, not a great translation, but the catchphrase is, do what is tove to them in your eyes. This is what Lot says to the men about his daughters. It's the same thing that was said about Sarah when she was given to Pharaoh. It's the same thing that we get uh, at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when Adam and Eve take the fruit. And there is this implication that Lot, who might have been a potential partner for God in the work of redemption, has assimilated. Right? He's assimilated to his culture. I, he welcomed the angels, um, but this is not the act of a righteous man. This is not the act of a man who could be a partner in redemption. And in this moment, I think we get this profound insight that, that we are um, easily conformed to the pattern of the world around us. We are easily conformed to what is normal around us, and what we accept as normal can change over time. Uh, in the 
40s and 50s and early 60s, we had the blue laws in the South. Did you have blue laws in Wisconsin? I don't know if you did. But in the South, we had the blue laws, and the blue laws um, regulated the Sabbath. It was illegal to sell alcohol on the Sabbath in the South because it was the Sabbath. You don't do that. It was illegal to, like, operate a movie theater on a Sunday morning. Boy, those were the days. Uh, It was, uh, you know, unheard of to have soccer games on a Sunday morning because um, all of our culture recognized as normative that we honor the Sabbath and respect it. We're going to church on Sunday morning. That's not normal today. It would be bizarre for us. Uh, I, I, I got to make a confession. I have a tendency after worship on Sunday mornings to go to McDonald's to get lunch on the way home. It's like a tradition. And um, it, would, it would be distressing to me to discover that McDonald's was closed because it was Sunday, because I want my sweet tea really, really bad. What we consider to be normal um, adjusts. And as culture, as any culture um, moves away from God, we tend to judge ourselves based on what is normal by our culture standard rather than the expectations of Scripture. Uh, We see this in so many simple places. I've said before, I think the TV show Friends, which I loved, did more to uh, deconstruct a Christian sexual morality than any other TV show in the history of TV. And because it normalized premarital sex. And it just said, of course, everybody's going to sleep around. It's the normal thing to do when you're young and cool and attractive. And so everybody does it all the time. Uh, Our our culture today normalizes violence. Um, It is a a form of entertainment. And and call me old-fashioned, but I think you shall not murder means also you shall not be entertained by murder. But so many of our TV shows and our movies glorify violence, right? Uh, we're told you shall not commit adultery, and I think that means you shall not be entertained by adultery. But if you watch any show on TV, you're going to see hyper-sexualized people. If you go on the internet, um, you're going to find everything you ever and never wanted to see. Today, uh, this afternoon, this evening, um, we will watch the most expensive commercials uh, all year long. And uh, I am of the opinion that you shall not covet means you shall not enjoy the idea of stuff making you happy, but that will be the primary message of all of those commercials. If you have this stuff, you'll be happier. This is all middle-of-the-road stuff to our culture. And so we practice what I would call spiritual appeasement, We say, yeah, I I know that maybe this isn't what Scripture says, but for our culture, it's normal. And so, at least by culture standard, I'm behaving in an appropriate way. And if I am am perhaps straying from the path of Scripture, well, uh, it's all for the sake of mercy. It's It's an appeasement I offer so I can live in this culture and be comfortable. In the in the story of Lot, we have um, the, the nightmare scenario. We have uh, the moment where God says, hey, I will no longer allow this culture to continue, and you, Lot, were supposed to be my partner, and so this is your last chance 
to go out and tell people, um, to come out of this culture, to stop the spiritual appeasement, to become different, become mine. Uh, And we get this really heartbreaking moment where Lot goes and he visits his sons-in-law. This is not clearly written in our text, because in our text it sounds like these are the men that are promised to marry his daughters. I, I don't think that's actually what it says. I think the implication is that Lot has sons and daughters, and some of his daughters are married. And so he goes to visit his sons and his sons-in-law who are with his married daughters, and he tries to get his family to come with him out of Sodom, and they won't come. He has unmarried daughters that come with him, but his married daughters and his sons and his sons-in-law and perhaps their children stay behind. Can you imagine what it would be like to know that Jesus is coming tomorrow? And so you've got to tell everybody you know, everybody you love that doesn't know Jesus that this is their last chance. This is their last chance to believe and to, and to come out with you and to be saved. It's a heartbreaking moment in this story, and it makes sense that Lot can't seem to get going, right? He just lingers behind in the city because he's got family there. And I think, what if things had been different with Lot? Um, What if his conduct to God matched his conduct to his family? Because this is the heartbreaking part of the story for me is that Lot seems to honor God but dishonor his family, right? He's willing to stand up for God and protect Him but not stand up for his own daughters. What if Lot was consistent? What if Lot uh, loved his family the way he loved God? Um, what, if, what if his life was consistent? And, and I think perhaps this is part of what God is looking for in a partner um, where we work redemption and hope and wholeness. He's looking for someone who can be consistent in the, the challenging seasons of life uh, and the situations where we are um, not normative anymore. Our values are not a given. Um, how do we act consistent? How do we be faithful? How do we stay true to who God calls us to be? I, I had um, some friends in college Christian friends, and um, we had a different perspective on um, how to handle parties in college. Parties in college were a big deal, of course, and I went to, I think, two or three in four years. just wasn't really my scene. Um, But I had some friends for whom it was great. They loved going to parties. They didn't drink to excess. Um, They didn't even drink at all if they were underage, um, but they enjoyed being with their friends. And for them, it felt like an opportunity to be a witness, to to show what drinking in moderation looked like, or uh, to show how to care for someone who was making bad choices. Uh, And what I appreciated in those moments is that they were consistent, that at the party or at the Bible study, they were the same person. Uh, and, and perhaps that's what we're called to be. We're called to be just the same faithful person in every aspect of our life in the midst of a culture of unfaithfulness. And when we can't be consistent, that's when we need to make a change. Uh, we've all heard the instruction, unless you are like a licensed lifeguard, and if you see somebody drowning in the ocean, usually swimming out to help them is not going to work. Why? 
because as they're drowning, they grab you and they pull you down with them, right? So what you do, uh, if you can, is you stand on the shore, you get a life preserver, you throw it to them, and you pull them in, right? Uh, and, and I think perhaps this is um, what Lot needed to learn, right? Lot was swimming out to drowning people and beginning to drown with them. He needed to have his feet on the shore and throw life to them. And I think perhaps this is our call. Our call is to be different enough uh, that we stand out from the world, but close enough that we are there to be God's partners in redemption and in the work of rescue. Our, our call is to be a people who are consistent in our identity and our faithfulness, but at the same time, not afraid of engaging with the world that God wants us to help save a people who value both justice and mercy. We get an interesting end of this story. Uh, at the end of the story, we get some more connections to the flood. We get um, God raining down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, but He rains sulfur and fire instead of um, the, the flood, the mabul. Um, we get God resting lot outside the city. The word for rest is Noah in Scripture. Uh, and we get this one last line I think is so significant, that God remembers Abraham. We, we were told during the flood that God remembered Noah. Now we're told God remembers Abraham and rescues Lot from the destruction of the cities of the plain. And, and I, I have to ask, why is Abraham effective and Lot not? Why is Abraham still a partner with whom God can work? And I think part of the answer is uh, that to avoid a life of appeasement and conformity, to be a person of consistency, we have to see the world as something separate from ourselves. We have to be fish constantly noticing the water in which we swim. Uh, and, and while Abraham is not perfect at this, he is quite literally standing apart from Sodom asking God to bring life to it, Lot is caught up in it and drowning with it. Uh, and so, I think it is so critical for us as the people of God to think, what does it mean for us to live in this culture but not be of the culture? Uh, there's a wonderful book by two of my professors called Resident Aliens. I think about a lot. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon wrote this book. And it's a conversation about what it means to be a people that are in the world but not of the world to be fish noticing the water in which we swim. And he tells a story of another moment in our history where um, what was normal for our culture was not acceptable to our God. One of us remembers as a young pastor serving in a small southern town in the throes of school desegregation. A white citizens group had been formed to fight the court's desegregation order. It was a tense, frightening situation. A meeting was called at the high school to discuss tactics for fighting the racial integration of the schools. In a packed auditorium, speaker after speaker condemned the court's order and urged people to resist. Then, sometime well into the tension-filled evening, the pastor of the local Baptist church came in. With great dignity and presence, he walked to the front of the auditorium and took a seat. He listened for a while. Then he rose to speak. When the presider saw him rise, he immediately yielded the microphone. 
The pastor who had served um, in a congregation in that community for decades spoke in deliberate grave tones, I am ashamed. I am ashamed. I have labored here for many years. I have baptized, preached to, and counseled with many in this room. I might have thought that my preaching of the gospel had done some good, but tonight I think differently. I cannot speak to those who are not of my congregation, but to those who are, I can only say that I am hurt and ashamed of you and might have expected more. He then left the podium and walked out of the auditorium. The meeting resumed awkwardly, but one by one, most of the members of the Baptist church quietly left the room until the auditorium was half empty and the meeting dribbled off into adjournment with no action taken. The schools integrated the next month without incident. Here was a pastor, an ordinary person who had labored for decades doing ordinary things like baptisms and marriages among ordinary people for the privilege of being a witness on one night in August. Ethics does not get any more Christian than this, an ordinary person living the Christian life before other ordinary people. Lot had one day, one day in his life that was the most important day of his life where he was going to go and tell and invite people to come out of destruction and into life with him. But what he needed was a lifetime. He needed a lifetime of consistency. He needed a lifetime of um, not conforming to his culture but standing out from it. He needed a lifetime of gospel living and gospel proclamation, constantly noticing the water in which he swam so that when his day came, his voice could be heard. This is our call. Our call is to be a people who live differently, who live consistently, who stand apart from our culture but are not afraid to love and reach out to people into it so that when our moments come to speak grace and hope and promise, our voice carries weight because it's the same voice they've heard their entire lives. May we be a people this week who live not in conformity to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Thanks be to God.